Chapter 14 The Count of the Hill My first orders, as a freshly minted officer of the government, were to head for the Comfort Inn in Warrenton, Virginia, a sad, dilapidated motel whose primary client was the State Department, by which I mean the CIA. It was the worst motel in a town of bad motels, which was probably why the CIA chose it. The fewer other guests, the lower the chances that anybody would notice that this particular comfort inn served as a makeshift dormitory for the Warrenton Training Center, or, as the folks who worked there call it, the Hill. When I checked in, the desk clerk warned me not to use the stairs, which were blocked off by police tape. I was given a room on the second floor of the main building, with a view of the inn's auxiliary buildings and parking lot. The room was barely lit, there was mold in the bathroom, the carpets were filthy with cigarette burns under the no-smoking sign, and the flimsy mattress was stained dark purple with what I hoped was booze. Nevertheless, I liked it. I was still at the age when I could find this seediness romantic, and I spent my first night lying awake in bed, watching the bugs swarm the single-domed overhead light fixture and counting down the hours to the free continental breakfast I'd been promised. The next morning, I discovered that on the continent of Warrenton, breakfast meant individual-sized boxes of Fruit Loops and sour milk. Welcome to the government. The Comfort Inn was to be my home for the next six months, my fellow inmates and I, as we called ourselves, were discouraged from telling our loved ones where we were staying and what we were doing. I leaned hard into those protocols, rarely heading back to Maryland or even talking to Lindsay on the phone. Anyway, we weren't allowed to take our phones to school since class was classified, and we had classes all the time. Warrenton kept most of us too busy to be lonely. If the farm down by Camp Peary is the CIA's most famous training institution, chiefly because it's the only one that the agency's PR staff is allowed to talk to Hollywood about, the Hill is without a doubt the most mysterious. Connected via microwave and fiber optics to the satellite relay facility at Brandy Station, part of the Warrenton Training Center's constellations of sister sites, the Hill serves as the heart of the CIA's field communications network carefully located just out of nuke range from D.C. The salty old techs who worked there like to say that the CIA could survive losing its headquarters to a catastrophic attack, but it would die if it ever lost Warrenton. And now that the top of the hill holds two enormous top-secret data centers, one of which I later helped to construct, I'm inclined to agree. The hill earned its name because of its location, which is atop, yes, a massive steepness. When I arrived, there was just one road that led in, past a purposely undermarked perimeter fence, and then up a grade so severe that whenever the temperature dropped and the road iced over, vehicles would lose traction and slide backward downhill. Just beyond the guarded checkpoint lies the State Department's decaying diplomatic communications training facility whose prominent location was meant to reinforce its role as cover, making the hill appear as if it's merely a place where the American Foreign Service trains its technologists. Beyond it, amid the back territory, were the various low, unlabeled buildings I studied in, and even farther on was the shooting range that the IC's trigger pullers used for special training. Shots would ring out in a style of firing I wasn't familiar with. Pop, pop, pop. Pop, pop, pop.
A double tap, meant to incapacitate, followed by an aimed shot, meant to execute. I was there as a member of Class 6-06 of the BTTP, the Basic Telecommunications Training Program, whose intentionally beige name disguises one of the most classified and unusual curricula in existence. The purpose of the program is to train TISOs, Technical Information Security Officers, the CIA's cadre of elite communicators, or less formally, commo guys. A TISO is trained to be a jack-of-all-trades, a one-person replacement for previous generations' specialized roles of code clerk, radio man, electrician, mechanic, physical and digital security advisor, and computer technician. The main job of this undercover officer is to manage the technical infrastructure for CIA operations, most commonly overseas, at stations hidden inside American missions, consulates, and embassies, hence the State Department connection. The idea is, if you're in an American embassy, which is to say if you're far from home and surrounded by untrustworthy foreigners, whether hostiles or allies, they're still untrustworthy foreigners to the CIA, you're going to have to handle all of your technical needs internally. If you ask a local repairman to fix your secret spy base, he'll definitely do it, even for cheap. But he's also going to install hard-to-find bugs on behalf of a foreign power. As a result, TISOs are responsible for knowing how to fix basically every machine in the building, from individual computers and computer networks to CCTV and HVAC systems, solar panels, heaters and coolers, emergency generators, satellite hookups, military encryption devices, alarms, locks, and so on. The rule is that if it plugs in or gets plugged into, it's the TISO's problem. TISOs also have to know how to build some of these systems themselves, just as they have to know how to destroy them when an embassy is under siege, say, after all the diplomats and most of their fellow CIA officers have been evacuated. The TISOs are always the last guys out. It's their job to send the final off-the-air message to headquarters after they've shredded, burned, wiped, degaussed, and disintegrated anything that has the CIA's fingerprints on it, from operational documents in safes to disks with cipher material to ensure that nothing of value remains for an enemy to capture. Why this was a job for the CIA and not for the State Department, the entity that actually owns the embassy building, is more than the sheer difference in competence and trust. The real reason is plausible deniability. The worst-kept secret in modern diplomacy is that the primary function of an embassy nowadays is to serve as a platform for espionage. The old explanations for why a country might try to maintain a notionally sovereign physical presence on another country's soil faded into obsolescence with the rise of electronic communications and jet-powered aircraft. Today, the most meaningful diplomacy happens directly between ministries and ministers. Sure, embassies do still send the occasional démarché to help support their citizens abroad, and then there are the consular sections that issue visas and renew passports. But those are often in a completely different building, and anyway, none of those activities can even remotely justify the expense of maintaining all that infrastructure. Instead, what justifies the expense is the ability for a country to use the cover of its foreign service to conduct and legitimize its spying. 
TISOs work under diplomatic cover with credentials that hide them among these foreign service officers, usually under the identity of attachés. The largest embassies would have maybe five of these people. The larger embassies would have maybe three, but most just have one. They're called singletons. And I remember being told that of all the posts the CIA offers, these have the highest rate of divorce. To be a singleton is to be the lone technical officer far from home in a world where everything is always broken. My class in Warrenton began with around eight members and lost only one before graduation, which I was told was fairly uncommon. And this motley crew was uncommon too, though pretty well representative of the kind of malcontents who voluntarily sign up for a career track that all but guarantees they'll spend the majority of their service undercover in a foreign country. For the first time in my IC career, I wasn't the youngest in the room. At age 24, I'd say I was around the mean, though my experience doing systems work at headquarters certainly gave me a boost in terms of familiarity with the agency's operations. Most of the others were just tech-inclined kids straight out of college or straight off the street who'd applied online. In a nod to the paramilitary aspirations of the CIA's foreign field branches, we called each other by nicknames, quickly assigned based on eccentricities more often than by our true names. Taco Bell was a suburb, wide, likable, and blank. At 20 years old, the only job he'd had prior to the CIA was as the night shift manager at a branch of the eponymous restaurant in Pennsylvania. Rain Man was in his late 20s and spent the term bouncing around the autism spectrum between catatonic detachment and shivering fury. He wore the name we gave him proudly and claimed it was a Native American honorific. Flute earned his name because his career in the Marines was far less interesting to us than his degree in panpipes from a music conservatory. Spo was one of the older guys at 35 or so. He was called what he was called because he'd been an SPO, a special police officer at the CIA's headquarters, where he got so bored out of his mind guarding the gate at McLean that he was determined to escape overseas even if it meant cramming his entire family into a single motel room, a situation that lasted until the management found his kid's pet snake living in a dresser drawer. Our elder was the colonel, a mid-forties former Special Forces commu sergeant who, after numerous tours in the sandbox, was trying out for his second act. We called him the colonel, even though he was just an enlisted guy, not an officer, mostly out of his resemblance to that friendly Kentuckian whose fried chicken we preferred to the regular fare of the Warrenton cafeteria. My nickname, I guess I can't avoid it, was The Count. Not because of my aristocratic bearing or dandyish fashion sense, but because, like the felt vampire puppet of Sesame Street, I had a tendency to signal my intention to interrupt class by raising my forefinger, as if to say, one, two, three, ah, 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 three things you forgot. These were the folks with whom I'd cycle through some 20 different classes, each in its own specialty, but most having to do with how to make the technology available in any given environment serve the government of the United States, whether in an embassy or on the run. One drill involved lugging the off-site package, 
which was an 80-pound suitcase of communications equipment that was older than I was, up onto a building's roof. With just a compass and a laminated sheet of coordinates, I'd have to find in all that vast sky of twinkling stars one of the CIA's stealth satellites, which would connect me to the agency's mothership, its Crisis Communications Center in McLean, call sign Central. And then I'd use the Cold War-era kit inside the package to establish an encrypted radio channel. This drill was a practical reminder of why the commo officer is always the first in and last out. The chief of station can steal the deepest secret in the world, but it doesn't mean squat until somebody gets it home. That night, I stayed on base after dark and drove my car up to the very top of the hill, parking outside the converted barn where we studied electrical concepts meant to prevent adversaries from monitoring our activities. The methods we learned about at times seemed close to voodoo, such as the ability to reproduce what's being displayed on any computer monitor by using only the tiny electromagnetic emissions caused by the oscillating currents in its internal components, which can be captured using a special antenna, a method called Van Eck freaking. If this sounds hard to understand, I promise we all felt the same way. The instructor himself readily admitted that he never fully comprehended the details and couldn't demonstrate it for us, but he knew the threat was real. The CIA was doing it to others, which meant others could do it to us. I sat on the roof of my car, that same old white Civic, and as I gazed out over what felt like all of Virginia, I called Lindsay for the first time in weeks or even a month. We talked until my phone's battery died, my breath becoming visible as the night got colder. There was nothing I wanted more than to share the scene with her. The dark fields, the undulating hills, the high astral shimmer. But describing it to her was the best I could do. I was already breaking the rules by using my phone. I would have been breaking the law by taking a picture. One of Warrington's major subjects of study involved how to service the terminals and cables, the basic, in many ways, the primitive components of any CIA station's communications infrastructure. A terminal, in this context, is just a computer used to send and receive messages over a single secure network. In the CIA, the word cables tends to refer to the messages themselves, but technical officers know that cables are also far more tangible. They're the cords or wires that for the last half century or so have linked the agency's terminals, specifically its ancient post-communication terminals all over the world, tunneling underground across national borders, buried at the bottom of the ocean. Ours was the last year that TISOs had to be fluent in all of this, the terminal hardware, the multiple software packages, and the cables too, of course. For some of my classmates, it felt a bit crazy to have to deal with issues of insulation and sheathing in what was supposed to be the age of wireless. But if any of them voiced doubts about the relevance of any of the seemingly antiquated tech that we were being taught, our instructors would remind us that ours was also the first year in the history of the Hill the TISOs weren't required to learn Morse code. Closing in on graduation, we had to fill out what were called dream sheets. We were given a list of the CIA stations worldwide that needed personnel. 
and were told to rank them in the order of our preferences. These dream sheets then went to the requirements division, which promptly crumpled them up and tossed them in the trash, at least according to rumor. My dream sheet started with what was called the SRD, the Special Requirements Division. This was technically a posting not at any embassy, but here in Virginia, from which I would be sent out on periodic tours of all the uglier spots in the sandbox, places where the agency judged a permanent posting too harsh or too dangerous, tiny, isolated, forward operating bases in Afghanistan, Iraq, and the border regions of Pakistan, for example. By choosing SRD, I was opting for challenge and variety over being stuck in just one city for the entire duration of what was supposed to be an up to three-year stint. My instructors were all pretty confident that SRD would jump at the chance to bring me on, and I was pretty confident in my newly honed abilities. But things didn't quite go as expected. As was evident from the condition of the Comfort Inn, the school had been cutting some corners. Some of my classmates had begun to suspect that the administration was actually, believe it or not, violating federal labor laws. As a work-obsessed recluse, I initially wasn't bothered by this, nor was anyone around my age. For us, this was the sort of low-level exploitation we'd experienced so often that we already mistook it for normal. But unpaid overtime, denied leave, and refusals to honor family benefits made a difference to the older classmates. The colonel had alimony payments, and Spo had a family. Every dollar counted. Every minute mattered. These grievances came to a head when the decrepit stairs at the Comfort Inn finally collapsed. Luckily, no one was injured, but everyone was spooked, and my classmates started grumbling that if the building had been bankrolled by any entity other than the CIA, it would have been condemned for fire code violations years ago. The discontent spread, and soon enough, what was basically a school for saboteurs was close to unionizing. Management, in response, dug in its heels and decided to wait us out, since everybody involved eventually had to either graduate or be fired. A few of my classmates approached me. They knew that I was well-liked by the instructors, since my skills put me near the top of my class. They were also aware, because I'd worked at headquarters, that I knew my way around the bureaucracy. Plus, I could write pretty well, at least by tech standards. They wanted me to act as a sort of class representative, or class martyr, by formally bringing their complaints to the head of the school. I'd like to say that I was motivated to take on this cause solely by my aggrieved sense of justice. But while that certainly did factor into the decision, I can't deny that for a young man who was suddenly excelling at nearly everything he attempted, challenging the school's crooked administration just sounded like fun. Within an hour, I was compiling policies to cite from the internal network, and before the day was done, my email was sent. The next morning, the head of the school had me come into his office. He admitted the school had gone off the rails but said the problems weren't anything he could solve. You're only here for 12 more weeks. Do me a favor and just tell your classmates to suck it up. Assignments are coming up soon, and then you'll have better things to worry about. All you'll remember from your time here is who had the best performance review. What he said had been worded in such a way that it might have been a threat, and it might have been a bribe. Either way, it bothered me. 
By the time I left his office, the fun was over, and it was justice I was after. I walked back into a class that had expected to lose. I remember Spo noticing my frown and saying, Don't feel bad, man, at least you tried. He'd been at the agency longer than any of my other classmates. He knew how it worked and how ludicrous it was to trust management to fix something that management itself had broken. I was a bureaucratic innocent by comparison, disturbed by the loss and by the ease with which Spo and the others accepted it. I hated the feeling that the mere fiction of process was enough to dispel a genuine demand for results. It wasn't that my classmates didn't care enough to fight, it was that they couldn't afford to. The system was designed so that the perceived cost of escalation exceeded the expected benefit of resolution. At age 24, though, I thought as little of the costs as I did of the benefits. I just cared about the system. I wasn't finished. I rewrote and resent the email. Not to the head of the school now, but to his boss, the director of field service group. Though he was higher up the totem pole than the head of the school, the DFSG was pretty much equivalent in rank and seniority to a few of the personnel I dealt with at headquarters. Then I copied the email to his boss, who definitely was not. A few days later, we were in a class on something like false subtraction as a form of field expedient encryption, when a front office secretary came in and declared that the old regime had fallen. Unpaid overtime would no longer be required, and effective in two weeks, we were all being moved to a much nicer hotel. I remember the giddy pride with which she announced, A Hampton Inn! I had only a day or so to revel in my glory before class was interrupted again. This time, the head of the school was at the door, summoning me back to his office. Spo immediately leaped from his seat, enveloping me in a hug, mimed wiping away a tear, and declared that he'd never forget me. The head of the school rolled his eyes. There, waiting in the school head's office, was the director of the field service group, the school head's boss, the boss of nearly everyone on the TISO career track, the boss whose boss I'd emailed. He was exceptionally cordial and didn't project any of the school head's clenched jaw irritation. This unnerved me. I tried to keep a calm exterior, but inside I was sweating. The head of the school began our chat by reiterating how the issues the class had brought to light were in the process of being resolved. His superior cut him off. But why we're here is not to talk about that. Why we're here is to talk about insubordination and the chain of command. If he'd slapped me, I would have been less shocked. I had no idea what the director meant by insubordination. But before I had the opportunity to ask, he continued. The CIA was quite different from the other civilian agencies, he said, even if on paper the regulations insisted it wasn't. And in an agency that did such important work, there was nothing more important than the chain of command. Raising a forefinger, automatically but politely, I pointed out that before I emailed above my station, I'd tried the chain of command and been failed by it, which was precisely the last thing I should have been explaining to the chain of command itself, personified just across a desk from me. The head of the school just stared at his shoes and occasionally glanced out the window.
Listen, his boss said. Ed, I'm not here to file a hurt feelings report. Relax. I recognize that you're a talented guy, and we've gone around and talked to all of your instructors, and they say you're talented and sharp, even volunteered for the war zone. That's something we appreciate. We want you here, but we need to know that we can count on you. You've got to understand that there's a system here. Sometimes we've all got to put up with things we don't like because the mission comes first, and we can't complete that mission if every guy on the team is second-guessing. He took a pause, swallowed, and said, Nowhere is this more true than in the desert. A lot of things happen out in the desert. And I'm not sure that we're at a stage yet where I'm comfortable you'll know how to handle them. This was their gotcha their retaliation. And though it was entirely self-defeating, the head of the school was now smiling at the parking lot. No one besides me, and I mean no one, had put down SRD, or any other active combat situation for that matter, as their first or second or even third choice on their dream sheets. Everyone else had prioritized all the stops on the European champagne circuit, all the neat, sweet vacation station bergs with windmills and bicycles where you rarely hear explosions. Almost perversely, they now gave me one of these assignments. They gave me Geneva. They punished me by giving me what I'd never asked for, but what everybody else had wanted. As if you were reading my mind, the director said, This isn't a punishment, Ed. It's an opportunity. Really. Someone with your level of expertise would be wasted in the war zone. You need a bigger station that pilots the newest projects to really keep you busy and stretch your skills. Everybody in class who'd been congratulating me would later turn jealous and think that I'd been bought off with a luxury position to avoid further complaints. My reaction in the moment was the opposite. I thought that the head of the school must have had an informant in the class who told him exactly the type of station I'd hoped to avoid. The director got up with a smile, which signaled that the meeting was over. All right, I think we've got a plan. Before I leave, I just want to make sure we're clear here. I'm not going to have another Ed Snowden moment. Am I? Chapter 15 Geneva Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, written in 1818, is largely set in Geneva, the bustling, neat, clean, clockwork-organized Swiss city where I now made my home. Like many Americans, I'd grown up watching the various movie versions and TV cartoons, but I'd never actually read the book, In the days before I left the States, however, I'd been searching for what to read about Geneva, and in nearly all the lists I found online, Frankenstein stood out from among the tourist guides and histories. In fact, I think the only PDFs I downloaded for the flight over were Frankenstein and the Geneva Conventions, and I only finished the former. I did my reading at night over the long, lonely months I spent by myself before Lindsay moved over to join me, stretched out on a bare mattress in the living room of the comically fancy, comically vast, but still almost entirely unfurnished apartment that the embassy was paying for on the Quai de Sujet, 
in the Saint-Jean-Felizé district, with the Rhone out one window and the Jura Mountains out the other. Suffice it to say, the book wasn't what I expected. Frankenstein is an epistolary novel that reads like a thread of overwritten emails, alternating scenes of madness and gory murder, with a cautionary account of the way technological innovation tends to outpace all moral, ethical, and legal restraints. The result is the creation of an uncontrollable monster. In the intelligence community, the Frankenstein effect is widely cited, though the more popular military term for it is blowback. Situations in which policy decisions intended to advance American interests end up harming them irreparably. Prominent examples of the Frankenstein effect, cited by after-the-fact civilian, governmental, military, and even IC assessments, have included America's funding and training of the Mujahideen to fight the Soviets, which resulted in the radicalization of Osama bin Laden and the founding of al-Qaeda, as well as the debathification of the Saddam Hussein-era Iraqi military, which resulted in the rise of the Islamic State. Without a doubt, however, the major instance of the Frankenstein effect over the course of my brief career can be found in the U.S. government's clandestine drive to restructure the world's communications. In Geneva, in the same landscape where Mary Shelley's creature ran amok, America was busy creating a network that would eventually take on a life and mission of its own and wreak havoc on the lives of its creators, mine very much included. The CIA station in the American embassy in Geneva was one of the prime European laboratories of this decades-long experiment. The city, the refined old-world capital of family banking and an immemorial tradition of financial secrecy, also lay at the intersection of EU and international fiber-optic networks and happened to fall just within the shadow of key communication satellites circling overhead. The CIA is the primary American intelligence agency dedicated to human, human intelligence, or covert intelligence gathering by means of interpersonal contact, person-to-person, face-to-face, unmediated by a screen. The COs, case officers, who specialized in this, were terminal cynics, charming liars who smoked, drank, and harbored deep resentment toward the rise of SIGINT, signals intelligence, or covert intelligence gathered by means of intercepted communications, which, with each passing year, reduced their privilege and prestige. But though the COs had a general distrust of digital technology, reminiscent of Frank's back at headquarters, they certainly understood how useful it could be, which produced a productive camaraderie and a healthy rivalry. Even the most cunning and charismatic CO will, over the course of their career, come across at least a few zealous idealists whose loyalties they can't purchase with envelopes stuffed with cash. That was typically the moment when they'd turn to technical field officers like myself with questions, compliments, and party invitations. To serve as a technical field officer among these people was to be as much a cultural ambassador as an expert advisor, introducing the case officers to folkways and customs of a new territory no less foreign to most Americans than Switzerland's 26 cantons and four official languages. On Monday, 
A CEO might ask my advice on how to set up a covert online communications channel with a potential turncoat they were afraid to spook. On Tuesday, another CEO might introduce me to somebody they'd say was a specialist in from Washington, though this was, in fact, the same CEO from the day before, now testing out a disguise that I'm still embarrassed to say I didn't suspect in the least, though I suppose that was the point. On Wednesday, I might be asked how best to destroy after transmitting, the technological version of burn after reading, a disk of customer records that a CEO had managed to purchase from a crooked Swisscom employee. On Thursday, I might have to write up and transmit security violation reports on COs, documenting minor infractions like forgetting to lock the door to a vault when they'd gone to the bathroom, a duty I'd perform with considerable compassion since I once had to write up myself for exactly the same mistake. Come Friday, the chief of operations might call me into his office to ask me if, hypothetically speaking, headquarters could send over an infected thumb drive that could be used by someone to hack the computers used by delegates to the United Nations, whose main building was just up the street. Did I think there was much of a chance of this someone being caught? I didn't, and they weren't. In sum, during my time in the field, the field was rapidly changing. The agency was increasingly adamant that COs enter the new millennium, and technical field officers like myself were tasked with helping them do that, in addition to all of our other duties. We put them online, and they put up with us. Geneva was regarded as ground zero for this transition because it contained the world's richest environment of sophisticated targets, from the global headquarters of the United Nations to the home offices of numerous specialized UN agencies and international non-governmental organizations. There was the International Atomic Energy Agency, which promotes nuclear technology and safety standards worldwide, including those that relate to nuclear weaponry the International Telecommunication Union, which, through its influence over technical standards for everything from the radio spectrum to satellite orbits, determines what can be communicated and how. And the World Trade Organization, which, through its regulation of the trade of goods, services, and intellectual property among participating nations, determines what can be sold and how. Finally, there was Geneva's role as the capital of private finance, which allowed great fortunes to be stashed and spent without much public scrutiny, regardless of whether those fortunes were ill-gotten or well-earned. The notoriously slow and meticulous methods of traditional spycraft certainly had their successes in manipulating these systems for America's benefit, but ultimately too few to satisfy the ever-increasing appetite of the American policymakers who read the IC's reports, especially as the Swiss banking sector, along with the rest of the world, went digital. With the world's deepest secrets now stored on computers, which were more often than not connected to the open Internet, it was only logical that America's intelligence agencies would want to use those very same connections to steal them. Before the advent of the Internet, if an agency wanted to gain access to a target's computer, it had to recruit an asset who had physical access to it. This was obviously a dangerous proposition, 
The asset might be caught in the act of downloading the secrets or of implanting the exploitative hardware and software that would radio the secrets to their handlers. The global spread of digital technology simplified this process enormously. The new world of digital network intelligence, or computer network operations, meant that physical access was almost never required, which reduced the level of human risk and permanently realigned the human-sig-int balance. An agent now could just send the target a message, such as an email, with attachments or links that unleashed malware that would allow the agency to surveil not just the target's computer, but its entire network. Given this innovation, the CIA's human would be dedicated to the identification of targets of interest, and SIGINT would take care of the rest. Instead of a CO cultivating a target into an asset through cash-on-the-barrel bribery or coercion and blackmail if the bribery failed, a few clever computer hacks would provide a similar benefit. What's more, with this method, the target would remain unwitting in what would inevitably be a cleaner process. That, at least, was the hope. But as intelligence increasingly became cyber-intelligence, a term used to distinguish it from the old phone-and-fax forms of offline SIGINT, old concerns also had to be updated to the new medium of the Internet. For example, how to research a target while remaining anonymous online. This issue would typically emerge when a CO would search the name of a person from a country like Iran or China in the agency's databases and come up empty-handed. For casual searches of prospective targets like these, no results was actually a fairly common outcome. The CIA's databases were mostly filled with people already of interest to the agency or citizens of friendly countries whose records were more easily available. When faced with a no results, a CO would have to do the same thing you do when you want to look someone up. They'd turn to the public Internet. This was risky. Normally, when you go online, your request for any website travels from your computer more or less directly to the server that hosts your final destination, the website you're trying to visit. At every stop along the way, however, your request cheerfully announces exactly where on the Internet it came from, and exactly where on the Internet it's going, thanks to identifiers called source and destination headers, which you can think of as the address information on a postcard. Because of these headers, your Internet browsing can easily be identified as yours by, among others, webmasters, network administrators, and foreign intelligence services. It may be hard to believe, but the agency at the time had no good answer for what a case officer should do in this situation beyond weakly recommending that they ask CIA headquarters to take over the search on their behalf. Formally, the way this ridiculous procedure was supposed to work was that someone back in McLean would go online from a specific computer terminal and use what was called a non-attributable research system. This was set up to proxy, that is, fake the origin of, a query before sending it to Google. If anyone tried to look into who had run that particular search, all they would find would be an anodyne business located somewhere in America, one of the myriad fake executive headhunter or personnel services companies the CIA used as cover. I can't say that anyone ever definitively explained to me why the agency liked to use job search businesses as a front, 
Presumably, they were the only companies that might plausibly look up a nuclear engineer in Pakistan one day and a retired Polish general the next. I can say with absolute certainty, however, that the process was ineffective, onerous, and expensive. To create just one of these covers, the agency had to invent the purpose and name of a company, secure a credible physical address somewhere in America, register a credible URL, put up a credible website, and then rent servers in the company's name. Furthermore, the agency had to create an encrypted connection from those servers that allowed it to communicate with the CIA network without anyone noticing the connection. Here's the kicker. After all of that effort and money was expended just to let us anonymously Google a name, whatever front business was being used as a proxy would immediately be burned, by which I mean its connection to the CIA would be revealed to our adversaries, the moment some analysts decided to take a break from their research to log into their personal Facebook account on that same computer. Since few of the people at headquarters were undercover, that Facebook account would often openly declare, I work at the CIA, or just as tellingly, I work at the State Department, but in McLean. Go ahead and laugh. Back then, it happened all the time. During my stint in Geneva, whenever a CEO would ask me if there was a safer, faster, and all-around more efficient way to do this, I introduced them to Tor. The Tor project was a creation of the state that ended up becoming one of the few effective shields against the state's surveillance. Tor is free and open-source software that, if used carefully, allows its users to browse online with the closest thing to perfect anonymity that can be practically achieved at scale. Its protocols were developed by the U.S. Naval Research Laboratory throughout the mid-1990s, and in 2003, it was released to the public, to the worldwide civilian population on whom its functionality depends. This is because Tor operates on a cooperative community model, relying on tech-savvy volunteers all over the globe who run their own Tor servers out of their basements, attics, and garages. By routing its users' internet traffic through these servers, Tor does the same job of protecting the origin of that traffic as the CIA's non-attributable research system with the primary difference being that Tor does it better, or at least more efficiently. I was already convinced of this, but convincing the gruff COs was another matter altogether. With the Tor protocol, your traffic is distributed and bounced around through randomly generated pathways from Tor server to Tor server, with the purpose being to replace your identity as the source of a communication with that of the last Tor server in the constantly shifting chain. Virtually none of the Tor servers, which are called layers, know the identity of or any identifying information about the origin of the traffic. And in a true stroke of genius, the one Tor server that does know the origin, the very first server in the chain, does not know where the traffic is headed. Put more simply, the first Tor server that connects you to the Tor network, called a gateway, knows you're the one sending a request. But because it isn't allowed to read that request, it has no idea whether you're looking for pet memes or information about a protest. And the final Tor server that your request passes through, called an exit, knows exactly what's being asked for, but has no idea who's asking for it. This layering method 
is called Onion Routing, which gives Tor its name, the Onion Router. The classified joke was that trying to surveil the Tor network makes spies want to cry. Therein lies the project's irony. Here was a U.S. military-developed technology that made cyber intelligence simultaneously harder and easier, applying hacker know-how to protect the anonymity of IC officers, but only at the price of granting that same anonymity to adversaries and to average users across the globe. In this sense, Tor was even more neutral than Switzerland. For me personally, Tor was a life-changer, bringing me back to the internet of my childhood by giving me just the slightest taste of freedom from being observed. None of this account of the CIA's pivot to cyber intelligence, or SIGINT on the internet, is meant to imply that the agency wasn't still doing some significant human in the same manner in which it had always done so, at least since the advent of the modern IC in the aftermath of World War II. Even I got involved, though my most memorable operation was a failure. Geneva was the first and only time in my intelligence career in which I made the personal acquaintance of a target, the first and only time that I looked directly into the eyes of a human being rather than just recording their life from afar. I have to say, I found the whole experience unforgettably visceral and sad. Sitting around discussing how to hack a faceless UN complex was psychologically easier by a wide margin. Direct engagement, which can be harsh and emotionally draining, simply doesn't happen that much on the technical side of intelligence, and almost never in computing. There is a depersonalization of experience fostered by the distance of a screen. Peering at life through a window can ultimately abstract us from our actions and limit any meaningful confrontation with their consequences. I met a man at an embassy function, a party. The embassy had lots of those, and the COs always went, drawn as much by the opportunities to spot and assess potential candidates for recruitment as by the open bars and cigar salons. Sometimes the COs would bring me along, I'd lectured them on my specialty long enough, I guess, that now they were all too happy to lecture me on theirs, cross-training me to help them play spot the sap in an environment where there were always more people to meet than they could possibly handle on their own. My native geekiness meant I could get the young researchers from CERN, Conseil Européen pour la Recherche Nucléaire, the European Council for Nuclear Research, talking about their work with a voluble excitement that the MBAs and political science majors who comprised the ranks of our COs had trouble provoking on their own. As a technologist, I found it incredibly easy to defend my cover. The moment some bespoke-suited cosmopolite asked me what I did, and I responded with the four words, I work in IT, or in my improving French, je travaille dans l'informatique, their interest in me was over. Not that this ever stopped the conversation. When you're a fresh-faced professional in a conversation outside your field, it's never that surprising when you ask a lot of questions. And in my experience, most people will jump at the chance to explain exactly how much more they know than you do about something they care about deeply. The party I'm recalling took place on a warm night on the outside terrace of an upscale cafe on one of the side streets alongside Lake Geneva. 
Some of the COs wouldn't hesitate to abandon me at such a gathering if they had to in order to sit as close as possible to whatever woman happened to match their critical intelligence value indicators of being highly attractive and no older than a student. But I wasn't about to complain. For me, spotting targets was a hobby that came with a free dinner. I took my plate and sat down at a table next to a well-dressed Middle Eastern man in a cuff-linked, demonstratively Swiss pink shirt. He seemed lonely and totally exasperated that no one seemed interested in him. So I asked him about himself. That's the usual technique. Just be curious and let them talk. In this case, the man did so much talking that it was like I wasn't even there. He was Saudi and he told me about how much he loved Geneva, the relative beauties of the French and Arabic languages, and the absolute beauty of this one Swiss girl with whom he, yes, had a regular date playing laser tag. With a touch of conspiratorial tone, he said that he worked in private wealth management. Within moments, I was getting a full-on polished presentation about what exactly makes a private bank private and the challenge of investing without moving markets when your clients are the size of sovereign wealth funds. Your clients? I asked. That's when he said, most of my work is on Saudi accounts. After a few minutes, I excused myself to go to the bathroom, and on the way there, I leaned over to tell the CEO who worked finance targets what I'd learned. After a necessarily too long interval fixing my hair, or texting Lindsay in front of the bathroom mirror, I returned to find the CO sitting in my chair. I waved to my new Saudi friend before sitting down beside the CO's discarded, smoky-eyed date. Rather than feeling bad, I felt like I'd really earned the pavé de Genève that were passed around for dessert. My job was done. The next day, the CO, whom I'll call Cal, heaped me with praise and thanked me effusively. COs are promoted or passed over based primarily on how effective they are at recruiting assets with access to information on matters substantial enough to be formally reported back to headquarters. And given Saudi Arabia's suspected involvement in financing terror, Cal felt under tremendous pressure to cultivate a qualifying source. I was sure that in no time at all, our fellow party guest would be getting a second paycheck from the agency. That was not quite how it worked out, however. Despite Cal's regular forays with the banker to strip clubs and bars, the banker wasn't warming up to him, at least not to the point where a pitch could be made, and Cal was getting impatient. After a month of failures, Cal was so frustrated that he took the banker out drinking and got him absolutely plastered. Then he pressured the guy to drive home drunk instead of taking a cab. Before the guy had even left the last bar of the night, Cal was calling the make and plate number of his car to the Geneva police, who not 15 minutes later arrested him for driving under the influence. The banker faced an enormous fine, since in Switzerland, fines aren't flat sums, but based on a percentage of income. And his driver's license was suspended for three months, a stretch of that time Cal would spend, as a truly wonderful friend with a fake guilty conscience, driving the guy back and forth between his home and work, daily, so that the guy could keep his office from finding out. When the fine was levied, causing his friend cash flow problems, Cal was ready with a loan. The banker had become dependent, the dream of every CO. There was only one hitch. When Cal finally made the pitch, 
the banker turned him down. He was furious, having figured out the planned crime and the engineered arrest, and he felt betrayed that Cal's generosity hadn't been genuine. He cut off all contact. Cal made a half-hearted attempt to follow up and do damage control, but it was too late. The banker who'd loved Switzerland had lost his job and was returning or being returned to Saudi Arabia. Cal himself was rotated back to the States. Too much had been hazarded, too little had been gained. It was a waste which I myself had put in motion and then was powerless to stop. After that experience, the prioritizing of SIGINT over HUMINT made all the more sense to me. In the summer of 2008, the city celebrated its annual Fête de Genève, a giant carnival that culminates in fireworks. I remember sitting on the left bank of Lake Geneva with the local personnel of the SCS, or Special Collection Service, a joint CIA-NSA program responsible for installing and operating the special surveillance equipment that allows U.S. embassies to spy on foreign signals. These guys worked down the hall from my vault at the embassy, but they were older than I was, and their work was not just way above my pay grade, but way beyond my abilities. They had access to NSA tools that I didn't even know existed. Still, we were friendly. I looked up to them, and they looked out for me. As the fireworks exploded overhead, I was talking about the banker's case, lamenting the disaster it had been. When one of the guys turned to me and said, Next time you meet someone, Ed, don't bother with the COs. Just give us his email address and we'll take care of it. I remember nodding somberly to this, though at the time I barely had a clue of the full implications of what that comment meant. I steered clear of parties for the rest of the year and mostly just hung around the cafes and parks of Saint-Jean-Falaise with Lindsay, taking occasional vacations with her to Italy, France, and Spain. Still, something had soured my mood, and it wasn't just the banker debacle. Come to think of it, maybe it was banking in general. Geneva is an expensive city and unabashedly posh, but as 2008 drew to a close, its elegance seemed to tip over into extravagance, with a massive influx of the super-rich, most of them from the Gulf states, many of them Saudi, enjoying the profits of peak oil prices on the cusp of the global financial crisis. These royal types were booking whole floors of five-star grand hotels and buying out the entire inventories of the luxury stores just across the bridge. They were putting on lavish banquets at the Michelin-starred restaurants and speeding their chrome-plated Lamborghinis down the cobbled streets. It would be hard at any time to miss Geneva's display of conspicuous consumption. But the profligacy now on display was particularly galling, coming as it did during the worst economic disaster, as the American media kept telling us, since the Great Depression. And, as the European media kept telling us, since the interwar period and Versailles. It wasn't that Lindsay and I were hurting. After all, our rent was being paid by Uncle Sam. Rather, it's that every time she or I would talk to our folks back home, the situation seemed grimmer. Both of our families knew people who'd worked their entire lives, some of them for the U.S. government, only to have their homes taken away by banks after an unexpected illness made a few mortgage payments impossible. 
To live in Geneva was to live in an alternative, even opposite reality. As the rest of the world became more and more impoverished, Geneva flourished. And while the Swiss banks didn't engage in many of the types of risky trades that caused the crash, they gladly hid the money of those who'd profited from the pain and were never held accountable. The 2008 crisis, which laid so much of the foundation for the crises of populism that a decade later would sweep across Europe and America, helped me realize that something that is devastating for the public can be, and often is, beneficial to the elites. This was a lesson that the U.S. government would confirm for me, in other contexts, time and again, in the years ahead.